Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia public event. In recent history, the world witnessed a peace summit between the United States President Donald Trump and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. While Trump cites negotiation and business skills in bringing Kim to the table, Kim would likely see it as an acknowledgement of the threat he poses with viable nuclear weapons. Does state acquisition of nuclear weapons lead to stability and peace or instability and crisis? We will now hear from Dr. Michael Cohen, a senior lecturer at the National Security College, Crawford School of Public Policy, ANU College of Asia and the Pacific, and the author of When Proliferation Causes Peace, The Psychology of Nuclear Crises, published by Georgetown University Press. This talk was recorded on the 20th of June 2018 at the city campus of La Trobe University. Well, thanks very much, you all, for coming. It's indeed an interesting time on the Korean Peninsula and for international politics more broadly. And I'm going to divide my comments up into four sort of broad themes. Firstly, I want to talk about the causes and consequences of the recent Trump-Kim summit that's probably on, that a number of you may have been thinking about. And specifically, I want to talk about the five ways I think this is going to go. So if you sort of think strategically about the main factors at play, what both actors want, I think there's basically one, there's, there's five different outcomes any, from, from North Korean denuclearization to nuclear war to the status quo with two variants of arms control. Um, talk about what they would each involve, talk about some of the challenges to the more desirable ones. I then want to talk a bit more, secondly, about what I think is the most li- likely outcome, which is basically nothing. Uh, the continuation of the status quo. I don't think, I think when all said and done, I would like this summit to count for a lot more and I'd like to see North Korea head down the road to denuclearization. I'm going to propose to you that there's a number of hurdles to to anything like that happening, and that the most likely outcome is probably just a continuation of the status quo. Uh, the challenge of that is that that's a status quo with a nuclear-armed North Korea capable of almost targeting Trump Tower. In fact, they'll probably get there within President Trump's first term. So it's going to be a very um, rocky and dangerous status quo, and I'll talk a bit about that. I'll then draw on my book and talk about some lessons of history. So what does the historical <coughs> record tell us about how we can expect North Korea to behave? So looking at states like the book actually looks at the Soviet Union and Pakistan and China and India and the US. What I will do is talk a bit about the Cold War in Pakistan to provide further evidence regarding how I think North Korea is going to behave over the short to long term. So, so firstly, the summit. Um, I think the first thing to say here is that it's hard to argue with the claim that in extending his hand to Kim Jong-un, and you can argue about whether that was a wise thing or, or a foolish thing, President Trump overturned 65 years of US policy regarding North Korea and nuclear weapons. Now, you can argue that maybe the Korean War should have been ended decades ago, because after all, the US is not sort of informally at war with Vietnam now, is it? That war sort of formally ended. Um, so maybe the Korean War should have formally ended as well. What's the sort of point in having this war that's going, yes, by the, the argument in the US is that by sort of ending the war and formally recognizing the regime, you bestow le- legitimacy on the regime, which the US doesn't want to do. And you can argue that maybe it made sense to do that. Um, I won't, won't sort of wade into that debate. One challenge with doing it now, or at least since the last two decades, give or take a few years, is that rec- having a meeting with, with a North Korean leader is not only giving some recognition to the North Korean regime, but it's actually giving some recognition and legitimacy to that regime's nuclear program. Um, Trump is, sending, is basically sending a signal to the world that 
amidst um, US Washington's concerted efforts to stop the spread of nuclear weapons, if you can find your way through the isolation, sanctions, threats of regime change, regional insecurity, you actually can, it turns out, secure a meeting with a sitting US president. Before this, you could not. Now, the Iranians have taken notice, maybe the, the Syrians. Um, and this is why many have argued that it was, at least if Trump, either it was silly for Trump to meet with Kim, or if he was going to meet with Kim, he should have extracted at least something more tangible than this vague North Korean commitment to denuclearize, which I'll argue basically boils down to nothing. Because the North and Washington understand denuclearization to be fundamentally different things. So where is North Korea now? Um, North Korea likely has as, as few as 20 to 30 nuclear warheads, perhaps as many as 60. Some, more le some other estimates put their arsenal almost up at 100. I'm not sure that's correct. Um, the regime has tested a 100 to 200 kiloton yield hydrogen bomb. They've done that now. There's, there's, I wouldn't want to argue with that. And according to the US Defense Intelligence Agency, they've also uh, miniaturized a warhead to fit on a ballistic missile. So for any sort of, I'm not sure how many nuclear wonks there are in the room, to sort of develop a nuclear weapon, you basically need three things. You need a warhead that can actually explode the uranium. You need it to fit on a missile. You can't sort of attach it to a donkey. You need it to actually fit it on a missile so the thing can actually take off. You actually therefore need it to be quite small. If it's very, very big, it won't fit on the missile. The missile won't be able to carry it. And you need it to get out of, if, if you're sort of North Korea and you're looking at the US, you need it to leave Earth's atmosphere and get to the US and re-enter Earth's atmosphere. Um, the North have got the warheads. They've now there's a growing consensus, I'd say they probably have, miniaturized a warhead. If you look at pictures on the internet of Kim and his associates looking at what looks like a crystal ball from Lord of the Rings, um, that's basically them trying to signal to us, yes, they've miniaturized a warhead now. What the jury's out on is whether they've actually miniaturized, uh, sorry, whether they've actually developed a missile that can re-enter Earth's atmosphere. And what the challenge here is, is to not only not only get the missile out of Earth's atmosphere, that, which they've done, but to actually get the thing to re-enter and actually reliably find a target. If any of you have seen um, Apollo 13 and related movies, you've got to get the missile to sort of come at the right angle. Um, if, it, if, if, you, if you get it too shallow, it bounces off. If it gets too deep, it just burns up. You've got to get it at the right angle to sort of penetrate Earth's atmosphere, which, which creates incredibly hot temperatures, and you need these complicated synthetic materials to ensure the missile just doesn't implode in Earth's, in Earth's atmosphere. That's what we think the North have not done yet, but there's a consensus given how much effort and they put into the regime and how, many, how, how quick the steps have been that they may well get there within Trump's first term. So when I say North Kim Jong-un will soon be able to target Trump Tower with nuclear weapons, there's a lot, a lot to that. Um, North Korea's nuclear program threatens the US position in Asia in a number of ways, and I'll just quickly touch on four of them. It enables the North to deter nuclear and conventional offensives by Washington and South Korea. And you might think, well, hang on, the only state likely to engage in those offenses is Washington in the first place, so it's a good thing that we can actually, that, that North Korea can actually stop Washington from engaging in, in that aggression. I'd agree with that. The challenge, of course, is that by deterring Washington, this emboldens the North a logic that I'll sort of get into in more detail later. And so North Korea's nuclear um, weapons constitute a shield behind which they can engage in lower level aggression out of the knowledge that were there, es were there adversaries to contemplate retaliation, they can escalate to nuclear weapons or even do things that might bring about 
a nuclear crisis. North Korea's nuclear weapons prohibit U.S. power projection. They undermine alliances. I'll talk a bit about the threat to Washington's alliance with South Korea and Japan and the implications of that for Australia. And relatedly, there's also concern that this could actually cause further nuclear proliferation. So if, you, if, you're, if you're sort of worried about other states getting nu- nuclear weapons, after what Trump has said about his desire to get U.S. troops out of the Korean Peninsula, look to South Korea maybe getting its own nuclear weapons in the next few years. I don't want to go on record and saying that's going to happen, but certainly I'd be looking and, and, and hoping that it doesn't. So for all these reasons, because North, Korea's, North Korean nuclear weapons complicate Washington's posture in Asia in all sorts of ways, increase the costs and raise risks, the U.S. has worked very hard to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons uh, really since 1945. Um, and here, I'm not, so in Australia, we tend to think about this as the new NPT and international norms and the Canberra Commission and all these things that we've been involved in, which of course is true. But you have to add to that economic sanctions, complex alliance politics and alliance dynamics. So the US alliance with West Germany, the US alliance with states like South Korea and Japan, and also threats of regime change, and also in some cases, regime change. Um, so we can criticize Washington all we want, but the fact is, the fact is, since 1990, how many states have managed to sneak through Washington's grasp and develop nuclear weapons? The answer is one. You might think, well, what about India and Pakistan, which indeed tested nuclear weapons in 1998? They basically had everything to do. They basically had all their nuclear um, weapons in order by 1989-90. Yes, they tested eight years later, but they were basically the consensus is nuclear powers by the end of the Cold War. And so whilst North Korea is in many ways a really sad story and you could argue a failure of nuclear nonproliferation, I'd also argue that because there's not five other states that we sort of think about in the same category as North Korea, this points to actually how successful wider nuclear nonproliferation and disarmament initiatives have been. I mean, maybe now with President Trump walking away from the JCPOA, Iran may be headed in that direction. Maybe we should be concerned about Iran again. But there's not half a dozen states. President Kennedy, a number of years ago, uh, worried that by now there'd be 40 nuclear powers. 40 nuclear powers. Um, There's nine, if we count count North Korea. And if we code South Africa, South Africa obviously had nuclear weapons and gave them away. And the only other, it's probably worth saying a little bit more about South Africa. South Africa is the only state ever to have given up its nuclear weapons. Why? Because of regime change. The only case we've ever seen a state totally do away with all of its nuclear weapons. I'll just say just a little bit more about the summit, then I'll move to some different outcomes. This is first and foremost a South Korean initiative, I think, spurred by how costly the spate of weapons and nuclear tests were to the South in 2017. 2017 was a big year of North Korean weapon testing. Lots of missile tests to nuclear tests. Also partly explained by Moon Jae-in being a new leader and the threatening spate of North Korean tests and the fact that he was involved in previous um, sunshine policy or something related to sunshine policy towards towards the North. Um, but Trump's concession, it signals to the North, Korean, the North Koreans and the Iranians that if you actually double down with this nuclear program, a sitting US president will meet with you. And this is why Obama and Bush and Clinton and Bush all avoided doing this. They didn't want to be that president that signaled to the North Koreans and actually the, the world writ large that if you persist with your nuclear program, you can actually secure a meeting with the U.S. president. This is why a spate of U.S. presidents, all of them, have avoided doing it. 
And this is why I would argue the only reason Trump did it was because his advisors did not stop him. Um, if you look at sort of how it happened, he basically caught his advisors off the cuff. He sort of decided he was going to do this, make it, made an announcement, and a lot of advisors, his advisors after that tried to backpedal, tried to pull him back, but by then it was too late. Um, and it could even be the case now that f with Bolton saying things like, no, this, is, this, this is going to be Libya, and then Trump sort of says, Bolton, be quiet, that's not what's going to happen here after the North Koreans don't like that. It could be that even his advisors are having second thoughts about it. Um, so I hope that the summit might start North Korea down the road to denuclearization um, and eventually getting rid of all its nuclear weapons. I worry that it won't. I think it's actually more likely that it won't. And there's also concern that it will embolden North Korea to engage in further aggressive and destabilizing behavior that it would not have done if they didn't meet with Kim. So this is an argument that they're actually, the summit uh, may not only not cause denuclearization, but may actually specifically embolden Kim to do worse things that he wouldn't have done otherwise given his current arsenal. So this summit could have been, um, yes, it, it, it might cause denuclearization, but it also may have been, might cause some quite dangerous North Korean behaviors. Let me now talk about um, the five ways I can see this going. Um, so I sort of categorize these, one, denuclearization, two, extensive arms control, three, limited arms control, four, nuclear war, and five, continuation of the status quo. So let me now just sort of run through each of those, talk about what they involve and talk about why I think they're more or less likely. Now, it's firstly worth flagging that many of you may know this, I don't know. Denuclearization for the, for the US means very different things than it does for the North. For the US, it means what probably most of us here think it would mean, North Korea giving up all of its nuclear weapons. For the North, it's actually the US winding down its influence on the Korean Peninsula and the influence of its nuclear weapons on the peninsula, if not actually winding down its alliance with South Korea itself. This is why when Trump, when Trump gets Kim to vaguely commit to denuclearization, all he's really committing to is to work with the US to do what he wants the US to do, which is wind down its alliance the South. There's nothing about, um, which is what a lot of us were hoping for the Kim to commit to remove some amount of weapons platforms by some date. There's none of that at all in there. Um, so this is why a lot of us have been skeptical and quite uh, pessimistic about the summit. Outcome one, denuclearization. Kim turns around and just gives away the whole nuclear shop. All his nuclear arsenal, all 60 weapons, strategic weapons, medium range weapons, tactical weapons, Gives them all, ships them all to Tennessee, as John Bolton was advocating, and ships out the f nuclear infrastructure, the uranium enrichment uh, facilities, plutonium reprocessing, all of it out. This is obviously deep. This is obviously would, would be a great outcome. You know, Trump would deserve three Nobel Peace Prizes if he could bring that about. Um, unfortunately, it's extraordinarily unlikely for a bunch of reasons. Reason number one: Why, if North Koreans since 1953 have been wanting a meeting with a sitting US president. Kim, 65 or six, whatever it is, you know, seven decades, give or take a bit later, finally gets that. And he probably has got it because of his nuclear arsenal. It's hard to imagine President Trump sitting down with him if North Korea's nuclear arsenal didn't exist and wasn't at its near operational status. Why, if that nuclear arsenal got Kim this summit, would Kim then turn around and just give it all away, expecting that one, he'd lose his insurance policy against regime change, but also he'd know that the US would pay, would, would pay nowhere near as much attention to him as they have in the past and may authorize regime change down the track. Reason number two, 
US troops can be brought back to the Korean Peninsula immediately. If North Korea is going to give everything away, you'd, it, the only way that's going to happen is if uh, Washington winds, either removes its troops from the Korean Peninsula, but you'd have to imagine possibly also actually just destroys the alliance with the South. That, you know, South, South Korea, you're on your own now. But Kim would have, to be, would have to know that those troops can be brought back overnight, can't they? Um, maybe not overnight, but certainly very, very quickly. Um, but if North Korea was to, was to destroy its nuclear arsenal and destroy all the f- facilities to actually develop that nuclear arsenal, that thing was about, that's 20, 25 years in the making, depending on actually how you define different parts of the arsenal. That's going to take decades to get back. Um, n- reason number three, Kim would be only too well aware that Trump may not be president in three or seven years, depending on whether he's a one-term, two-term, maybe he goes sooner. I don't want to wade into that. And just as an aside, Yes, my name is the same as his lawyer. I'm not his lawyer and I'm not related, not related to his lawyer at all. Um, so Kim, being aware that Trump will not be president in three or seven years' time, but that he'll be around for decades, you'd have to think, would conclude or at least worry that were he to give the whole nuclear arsenal away, whoever comes after Trump, whether that's a Democrat or another Republican, might reverse that policy, just in fact as Trump reversed Obama's policy on the Iran nuclear deal. So um, it seems to me that if I was Kim, I'd be worried about that. I'd suggest that if you were Kim, you'd be worried about that too. And then fourth, Kim has essentially at this summit scored something for nothing. He's got a meeting with a sitting US president without really giving anything in return, other than sort of a vague commitment to denuclearize, but that really doesn't mean anything. We wanted to sort of see some specific concrete commitment to do something with, presumably get rid of them or destroy, some type of weapons platform by some date. Um, Now, if you give him, you know, international, you know, free lunches are rare, although I work at a university, you can get free lunches there. I'm sure you can get free lunches here sometimes as well. But in international politics, free lunches are rare. If you give Kim something for nothing, you'd have to be concerned that he might try and get something else for nothing, or at least push Trump a little harder. If, I, if I've got Trump to sit down with me for nothing, maybe I can get him to sort of stop those military exercises for nothing. Well, he said he'd, he'd, said he'd do that. Maybe I can get him to actually do further things to the US alliance with the South with still basically doing nothing. If I was Kim, I'd be trying to see how much I, far I can get before Trump actually expects me to do something. Um, for all of these reasons, I hope you would see that all of these reasons push against Kim getting rid of everything. And I'd suggest that short of um, nuclear war, which I really hope doesn't happen, which is the fourth outcome that I'll get to in a moment, I think we're going to have to live with some North Korean nuclear weapons for the foreseeable future. That's, that's, that's sad and unfortunate, but I think that's, that's reality. So that's outcome one, which I think is unlikely. Outcome two... I call extensive arms control. And this would essentially leave North Korea Korea close to where Iran was before it signed the nuclear deal with with, with the US. Extensive arms control. Extensive arms control would involve something like this, Kim giving up all his nuclear weapons, all 60 of them, but keeping his facilities to develop more should relations deteriorate. Or something, something like that. All the arsenal goes, but the mechanisms to produce the arsenal and the, the, the nuclear infrastructure and facilities stay. This is probably the next most desired outcome, and presumably if Trump could get this, that would be a great win, and he'd probably still deserve a peace prize or two. Um, 
The challenge here, as many of you may know who've studied arms control in the Cold War and elsewhere, is that this essentially becomes a challenge of verification. We'd have to be sure, well, the, or President Trump and, and the US and, and the international community would have to be sure that Trump indeed had done away with all of his nuclear weapons. Um, this invo involves verification, monitoring, and checking of North Korean compliance. This involves many people walking um, around North Korea, inspecting weapons platforms, inspecting weapons stockpiles, inspecting infrastructure and related facilities to know, one, that all the, we the weapons are gone, and two, that these uranium enrichment uh, facilities that were actually enriching uranium before are not enriching it to this high grade level. Now, the challenge with this, which actually similar challenges occurred earlier in the Cold War, is that this is going to reveal how weak Kim is, but this is also going to provide information that uh, the US could actually use in targeting North Korea. In getting information about, about how many North nuclear weapons the regime has left, this actually provides huge amounts of information about North Korea's nuclear infrastructure, which could just all be targeted in a strike. And the US probably already has fairly good knowledge about where these things are. Um, the six-party talks actually broke apart about a decade ago for this exact reason. The US was worried about Kim's, Kim's compliance, and, the re and, and North Korea was very worried about international inspectors on North Korean soil revealing information to the US and others about the nature of North Korean's facilities and how Often, we might think that uh, the North wouldn't want, would, wouldn't want um, US and international inspectors there because they're so strong, but the, cons the concern is often that if you let the inspectors on your territory, they actually realize how weak you are. So this is basically what happened in the Cold War in, in the late 1950s. One of the reasons that Khrushchev stalled again and again with Eisenhower and then with Kennedy on a test ban treaty was that the Americans wanted, I think, six or seven annual inspections a year. Khrushchev didn't want to give them any more than two. At the time, he only had two ICBM sites, just two. And if, he, if the Americans could, inspe could have inspected them amidst all this talk about landing people on the moon and missiles and men in space, then they'd realize just how weak Khrushchev was. Khrushchev didn't want that. And I would suggest to you that the North Koreans would also not want that. So extensive arms control may be a little bit more likely than total denuclearization, but I would argue that this verification challenge is so severe that you, wouldn't, you also wouldn't bet the house on it. <clears throat> okay, so if extensive arms control is not likely, what about limited arms control? And there's all sorts of ways this can go. I would suggest the most likely is Kim doing away with his strategic arsenal but keeping the tactical and medium range weapons. What do I mean by that? It's essentially this, Kim does away with those nukes capable of targeting the United States but he keeps those that target South Korea and Japan. You can imagine what a victory that would be for President Trump. I won't do a Trump impression, but you can imagine him saying, look, we've now protected the American homeland from North Korean nuclear missiles. Yes, they can still target South Korea and Japan, but we, the US, are safe. And you know, probably in, in that scenario, Australia may be safe as well. So that would be, may, you could argue, be quite good for us. A few challenges here. Firstly, all of the arms control problems that I noted a moment ago. Here, you're sort of essentially verifying that rather than all the, all the weapons being gone, you're verifying that the strategic weapons are gone, but that the medium and tactical ones are still there. But that involves inspecting North Korean missiles, making sure that uh, certain long-range missiles haven't been put where medium-range missiles are kept. It's going to involve the same level of intrusive inspections to ensure that North Korea are, are complying. And I would suggest Kim would be very, very weary of this. There's other challenges with that as well that the first one um, doesn't have. 
if, if, if that plays out, and when I heard President Trump say, look, I'd like to bring US troops home from Korea, I was sort of thinking that this is what may well happen. This actually puts South Korea and Japan in many ways into, into unprecedented and challenging territory. What this would essentially involve is a US president giving, essentially blessing a North, or approving of a North Korean capability to target long-standing US allies with nuclear weapons. Because as I said a moment ago, he's, Kim would be getting rid of the strategic weapons, but keeping the medium and the tactical range ones. So the President Trump's saying, look, I prove in this current alliance framework of this North Korean ability to target South Korea and Japan with nuclear weapons. That's unprecedented. Um, it could well happen um, if it did, and if President Trump did what he wants to do and brought the troops home, and you all, you all heard him say that he'd like to do that, this raises a whole lot of challenging scenarios, not only for, for, for uh, South Korea, but actually for China as well. Um, if I was South Korea, or South Korean strategic planners, I'd be thinking, well, how do I provide for my security now, given that the bedrock of South Korean grand strategy, US troops and the alliance, is now severely fragmented? How should I put this? This raises a whole set of challenges that South Korean nuclear weapons nicely overcome. Now, I don't want to go on record as saying that South Korea is going to get nuclear weapons. What I will say is that in 2016, before the spate of, of North Korean weapons tests, two-thirds of the South Korean general public, according to public opinion polls, were in favor of South Korea developing their own nuclear weapons. And they actually have gone down that road before during when Nixon announced the Guam Doctrine at, at other points. So South Korea has gone down that nuclear road. If Trump was to sign up that kind of limited arms control arrangement, South Korea finds itself in a strategic situation where nuclear weapons for South Korea suddenly look much more attractive. Keep in mind that North Korea still has nuclear weapons here. They're facing a nuclear-armed North Korea that can sink South Korean ships and shell South Korean islands, um, and the U.S. is gone now. So worry that it could be, you know, a massive um, extension of South Korean conventional military power. I'm not sure, and I don't want to. I don't don't walk away thinking South Korea is definitely going to do this. I'm not saying they are, but certainly it's something I'd be concerned about if that's where Trump takes that. Um, and it's just a little bit more on that. If you know anything about the, in, the the long-standing rivalry between Japan and South Korea, you'll know that if South Korea goes down that nuclear road, that raises all sorts of problems for Japan. Um, now, if you're China you'd be chomping at the bit to see US troops leave the Korean Peninsula. I'm not sure you'd be so enthusiastic about a nuclear South Korea and goodness me, a nuclear Japan. If you're China, that's the last thing you want, given the ravages that Japan uh, in, uh, 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 inflicted on, on China in the Second World War. That would be sort of the, the, the thing that China is above all wanting to avoid. That may well be the outcome. Um, a related outcome is that Moon cut, President Moon cuts a deal that actually ejects US troops from the, the Korean Peninsula. But Moon has, sort of, whilst Trump has said he wants that, Moon has sort of signaled that he likes those troops being there. So we can maybe put that aside. Um, but suffice to say, you know, that limited arms control, while it still involves the verification challenges of extensive arms control and raises all sorts of really tough challenges for Washington's alliance with South Korea and Japan. Okay, so that's the first three. I've got two to go. The fourth is nuclear war. And I, th I, 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 I can sleep at night. Um, I suggest that you should be able to, don't lose sleep worrying about nuclear war. Um, but in, it is dangerous, and it's in many ways 
if you, in, in, it's in many ways more dangerous than things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, or at least you know, a Korean Peninsula Cuban Missile Crisis would in many ways be more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis and the South Asia nuclear crisis of 0102 that I'll get to. There's all sorts of ways this could pan out. Let me just focus on, on, on one of them. Basically, Trump and Kim both got to the summit thinking that you know, Trump's maximum pressure campaign and for Kim, his nuclear arsenal have kind of compelled the other one to come. Like both of them got there thinking they're operating in a position of strength. Now, Kim could walk away and think, I've got my meeting with Trump, I don't need anything else, I'm good, no more, no more summits. Or Trump could not withdraw economic sanctions and maybe even restart military exercises with the South if Kim doesn't offer concessions in the near future. As the weeks and months go on, as Trump and Kim both see each other doing things that are construed as not in the spirit of the agreement, they might want to try and compel their adversary back to the bargaining table to try and get them to do what they thought they would do. And it's at times like this that Trump might authorize a bloody nose strike or a limited use of force, or, or Kim might test a missile or do something, target Guam. Um, the thinking is a limited use of force will bring my negotiating partner back to the negotiating table. But of course, how would both know that a limited use of force is in fact limited? How could President Trump credibly commit to Kim that yes, I'm going to destroy this North Korean base or this part of North Korea, but I'm not gonna destroy more than that, I promise. Um, assurances in international politics, especially between states like the US and the North that have such chronic trust deficits are very, very hard. Um, if those limited uses of force uh, get authorized um, and Kim, the moment Kim thinks a greater uh, US use of force is forthcoming, he has incentives to go nuclear and to go nuclear quickly. And without getting into the details, if there is another armed conflict between the North and its adversaries on the Korean Peninsula, it's not going to be a repeat of the first Korean War, which was really, for most of the time, a protracted, drawn-out affair, on again, off again, that lasted three-plus years. Given how weak North Korea is, yes, it's the world's fourth-largest army, but their aircraft are, I think, still 1950s, 1960s vintage. The pilots have... 10 hours combat practice a year, I could go on and on. Um, Kim knows he's going to lose any conventional conflict. Under these conditions, he has incentives in, a, in an armed conflict to go nuclear and to go nuclear quickly. And I'd actually suggest also that that's actually quite a quite rational thing to do. It's, it's not like he's doing this because he's mad or young or inexperienced. If I was in Kim's position, and dare I say, if, if, if any of you were in Kim's position, you would face strong structural incentives given, how, given the sort of formidable forces that you'd be facing before you at the start of any armed conflict to maybe detonate a nuclear weapon in the mountains as a signal to the South and to the US not to come any further. That's a rational thing to do. This is not sort of Kim being crazy and inexperienced. There's also related points about um, any conflict becoming a nuclear war also dragging Washington and China in. Let me now get to the fifth option and um, that's the status quo which I think is basically more, the most likely. So I've talked about these four options. Um, I've also talked about, so the thing about nuclear war is it's so costly um, that, ho even, that hopefully Trump and Kim won't authorize limited uses of force. And I hope if they do authorize limited uses of force, Kim won't escalate. And, he'll, and Trump will somehow be able to credibly commit to Kim that he's not engaging in some longer, longer spate of aggression. Um, I think the most likely outcome number five is the status quo, where after some more, some more 
uh, Trump sort of says the summit's achieved this and this, and there's maybe more handshaking and back padding. Basically, when all said and done, things revert to normal, which is North Korea testing weapons, not testing weapons, making threats, not making threats, going through that cycle that you're all familiar with. I think that's where this is basically going to end. And what I want to talk a bit about now is the historical record, what history tells us about where this really goes. And what I ba- what the, the take-home point here, which is what the book talks about, is that I think we're basically headed for a Korean Peninsula-style Cuban Missile Crisis. I guess the first thing I should say about the book, you look at the title and you, it, it's called When Proliferation Causes Peace. And I want to just sort of clarify one thing. In calling the book that, I'm not trying to argue that. I'm not sort of, many of you are sort of familiar with Kenneth Waltz's position that nuclear weapons are pacifying things in international politics. They sort of, in, they sort of bring about stability and peace. And actually, the, if, if more nuclear weapons spread around the world, the world would be a safer place. That's not quite the position I'm arguing here. The point's a little, the argument's a little more subtle. The book basically notes that nuclear powers sometimes engage in conventional aggression, make threats, and do things that all of us would agree are very destabilizing. But at other times, nuclear powers do things like what Kim just did, engage in confidence-building measures and diplomacy and uh, tit for, and you know, reciprocal measures that are sort of designed to restore positive, positive and cooperative relations with their adversary. So if nuclear powers can at some times do these really destabilizing, dangerous things that all of us just want them not to do, and at other times behave the way we want them to, what causes them to do the bad stuff? And what causes them to do the good stuff? And how can we be sure that states like North Korea do much more good stuff and much less bad stuff? And what does the historical record tell us? And how can we use that to ensure that North Korea behaves because I think we're going to be dealing with a nuclear North Korea for some time, behaves like other experienced nuclear powers. Okay, so my historical story starts in 1956. Many people look at North Korea and say that Kim is is playing a a really weak hand well. And in 1956, Nikita Khrushchev also had a very weak hand. Having begun to consolidate his power, he suddenly faces twin crises, an uprising in Hungary and the uh, Anglo-British... Israeli invasion of Egypt. Of course, Nasser had just nationalized the Suez Canal, and the invasion of Egypt was promising to very quickly topple Khrushchev's valuable ally in, 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 in the Middle East, who was in many ways the jewel of Khrushchev's wider um, Middle Eastern empire. As the British and the French invasion proceeds, and as Nap- Nasser, Abdul Gamal, Gamal Nasser's military situation very quickly deteriorates, Khrushchev faces the prospect of just losing Egypt and his influence there. And he ca- comes up with a plan on Moscow radio. He threatens, he says something like, Britain, how dare you do this against Egypt? What would you do if you were faced with such weapons of mass destructive power? And of course, the, rel- the threat is to Soviet nuclear weapons, the RM-5 missile. Now, at the time, the British and the French ran to the CIA um, station in London or Paris or wherever they were and said, what is the status of the Soviet MR5? We've just been given a nuclear threat by Khrushchev. And they quickly learned that that missile was not yet operational. That, that threat by Khrushchev was a bluff, and he knew it. He didn't have the capability of targeting Britain and France with nuclear weapons. But because the British and the French and the Israeli invasion on Egypt was, did, was, fact, it was designed assuming that Eisenhower would bail their currency out if things went bad, they didn't realize that Eisenhower actually had no intention of doing that. He wanted to maintain U.S. influence 
um, amongst states like Egypt, he basically just let the Britain's shortfalls of oil and rapidly depleting, uh, va- rapid, rapidly uh, falling currency value, basically compel France and Britain to walk out of Egypt. And then Israel leaves a few months later. So what if you're Khrushchev, you see yourself making a nuclear threat really because you didn't have anything else you could do, not really expecting it to do much. I mean, what else could you have done? And then 24 hours later, the British and the French walk out of Egypt. And you think to yourself, well, wow, maybe maybe this works. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that Khrushchev learnt from this episode that nuclear threats actually work. That you can threaten adversaries with nuclear escalation or nuclear damage, even though this is not credible, and they'll actually do things that they otherwise wouldn't have done. He makes similar threats in the latter 1950s in the Middle East. He issues an ultimatum to Eisenhower in 1959 regarding West Berlin that many of you may know. This is the first Berlin crisis. And Eisenhower, in a manner remarkably prescient to the Trump-Kim summit of a week or two ago, says, look, this Soviet assertion and threat making, it's just too much. Maybe if, we, if I sit down and have a meeting with him, he'll just stop. Does that sound familiar? Um, what happened? There was meant to be another summit in 1960, but after um, Khrushchev learned that Eisenhower had authorized spy missions over the US, uh, over Soviet territory, and Eisenhower denied it, he cancelled the 1960 summit. Um, in 1961, he, he sort of held off in 1960 to, to ensure that Kennedy would beat Richard Nixon, who he absolutely hated um, in the presidential election. Didn't waste any time in issuing another nuclear threat to JFK. He's still thinking that nuclear threats are the best bet he has to realize his ambition in West Berlin. Uh, That doesn't work. You have the Berlin crisis. That doesn't stop him. He then tries it again in the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, by the way, was just as much about West Berlin as it was about those missiles in Cuba. Then what happens? You have the 1963 crisis. Well, I'm just kidding. Of course, there was no 1963 crisis, was there? The Cold War changed after the Cuban Missile Crisis, didn't it? Rather than a 1963-1964 crisis, and there was nothing to have stopped Khrushchev later in 1963 having another roll of the the nuclear dice to try and eject Kennedy from West Berlin again, or or even as LBJ was working towards doubling down in Vietnam, trying to eject uh, US forces from West Berlin a second time. But instead, you see a nuclear test ban that had, had thus far proved, proven elusive and, arm, and really the beginning of arms control. And so after the Cuban Missile Crisis, nuclear threats, which had formerly been the centerpiece of Soviet grand strategy, become something in the background. So there's something about the Cuban Missile Crisis that changed Soviet strategy. 1990, when Pakistan got nuclear weapons, was the year when fatalities in the Kashmir dispute increased by 1,000%. In 1989, there were 52 fatalities per year. In 1990, it goes to over 1,000. This is due to Pakistan doubling down its its sponsorship of the insurgency in Kashmir. And over the 1990s, you see this increase to the point where by 2001, there's now 4,500 people a year dying in Kashmir, mostly because of the Pakistan-sponsored insurgency. You also see Pakistan sponsoring a war in Kargil in 1999 that killed 2,000 people. Um, and then, in a manner, again, very, very much re- re- uh, prescient to what Trump and Kim just did, Indian Prime Minister Vajpayee says, look, this Pakistani-sponsored militancy and revisionism in Kashmir is just too much. Maybe if I meet with the Pakistani leader, this will stop. 
And we now know that this actually convinced President Musharraf that nuclear threats was a very smart option because, after all, it forces Vajpayee to come to the table in a manner that he hadn't done for a long time. Um, you then rather see further Pakistani revisionism. You see the December, late December 2001 parliament attacks. You see, in response to that, India mobilizing in, a, in an effort to sort of ensure that Pakistani revisionism stops. You then, in May 2002, after a second attack in, in Jammu in May, you see the Indians um, saying, basically, we're going to invade Pakistan now, chop it in two again, just as we did in 1971. Musharraf authorizes missile tests. These are the missiles that were capable of carrying Pakistani nuclear, nuclear weapons and says, if you trespass on, Indian, on Pakistani territory, we'll, drop, we'll shed um, all our blood. And then Musharraf freaks out. He, has, he fears imminent nuclear war. He doesn't sleep for a few days. Um, and then Pakistani policy changes again. And you might say, well, how on earth do I know that Musharraf had a war scare? Well, he told me. I interviewed him about 10 years ago now. So this was when he was sort of actively brandishing his credentials to re-enter Pakistani politics. Um, I have no reason to think he was lying. I mean, after all, it does make him look like quite the peacemaker. Um, and he, there were other really interesting things that he admitted to me as well. After that, um, you see Pakistani sponsorship of insurgency wind down, fatalities decline, and you see sort of confidence-building measures and the rest in South Asia. Yes, you see the Mumbai attacks in 2008, but the general story in Kashmir is an improvement in relations. And so I'll end um, on that note. A nuclear crisis seems to have been necessary to cause the Soviet Union and Pakistan to, wait, to behave in ways that we'd like. I worry that it's going to take a nuclear crisis to really cause North Korea to behave like other experienced nuclear powers but North Korea is, a, is so weak that there's dangers in a Korean Peninsula Cuban missile crisis that can cause escalation that we didn't see in the Pakistani, Soviet, Chinese cases. So I hope for the best. I fear for the worst. Whilst we'll see a continuation of the status quo, we may not get nuclear war. And I should probably leave it at that.